Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. This week's episode is the epic story of my grandfather, Erwin Blumenfeld, who at 17 became a German ambulance driver in World War I. The story chronicles the unbelievable horror of life on the front. My grandfather's attempts to escape from military service, his time as an accountant in a military-sanctioned Red Cross brothel, the eating of dogs and cats, and a great deal of butchery. In other words, this isn't a podcast to share with the entire family. It is, however, one of the more remarkable tales I've ever heard. Later in life, my grandfather Owen became one of the world's most accomplished photographers, and yet he always thought he'd be remembered for his writing. This week's story is excerpted from Owen's autobiography, Eye to Eye, which was published by Thames and Hudson in 1999. The book was written in German and originally published in 1976 under the title Durch Tausend Jahre Zeit, or Through Millennia. The English version was expertly translated by Mike Mitchell, Brian Murdoch, and Nora Hodges. My grandfather, Owen Blumenfeld, was born in Berlin on May 5th, 1896. For keen listeners of Podship Earth, you may remember that Owen's grandfather, Henry Cohn, who came to California in the 1850s for the gold rush, was featured in episode 88. Owen's father, Albert, was the owner of Jordan and Blumenfeld, the leading supplier of umbrellas and walking sticks in the German Empire. His slogan was, Rain brings gain. Albert Blumenfeld's business card read, Expert witness for umbrella affairs at the Royal Prussian High Court. Albert Blumenfeld died from syphilis on September 19, 1913, leaving his wife Emma and his three children, Annie, Owen, and Heinz, destitute. As a result, Owen got a job at Moses and Schloschlauer, a clothier, to help the family. And this is where today's story begins. The rest of the podcast is in my grandfather's own writing. After only one year with Moses and Schloschlauer, a clothier, my meteoric rise unexpectedly started when Herr Otto Moses, one of the owners, unmistakably grunted, Morning! to me during his morning round. Never before had he condescended to wish an employee good morning. The entire staff was plunged into speculation as to why I'd been singled out for such an honor. I started to have a privileged position, and from now on I took to arriving six minutes late without Fräulein Schmidt III, who was positioned at the entrance for that purpose, adding my name to the list of latecomers. Herr Moses closed his left eye and fixed his right on the map of Germany that hung on the office wall four inches above my head. Without even a glance in my direction, with his open eye, he issued his command with crystal clarity. What is taking place here today in this private office is a business secret of historical importance. War creates an undreamt of boom in black. When the war breaks out, he said, baring his teeth in anticipation, we must be armed to the teeth in black. 
If this war turns into a 30 years war, as I anticipate, it will last from 1914 to 1944. Every German woman will marry several times and will need a corresponding number of widows' outfits. They'll be queuing up for black maternity dresses. The future looks black. Blacker than black. As soon as the killing begins, mourning will be big business, and the more that get killed, the more desperate women will be to find another husband. If we strike while the iron is hot, we can make a killing of our own. Verily, I say unto you, he went on in prophetic tones, the women will be going around in black lingerie. War means a moratorium. No one pays their debts. We should, no, we must stockpile. Order for immediate delivery with a cancellation clause, double last year's amounts of black velveteen, black zanella, black serge, black wool crepe, black cotton crepe, black moroccan, black voile, black demi-voile, black wool voile, black cotton voile, for expensive transparent morning blouses, black ninon, black chapé voile, black marcinette, Black taffeta, black cashmere, black silk cashmere, black wool corduroy, black demands, black silk tulle, black cotton tulle, and black velours chiffon for low-cut evening gowns with black lace trimmings. All orders to go off as express letters with the midday post. How much is your salary at the moment? I was already beginning to see myself as a war profiteer. 25 marks a month, I said. Better than a kick up the ass, said Herr Schlossschauer. For the one and only time, Herr Otto Moses placed his massive marble paw on my drooping shoulder. Herr Blumenfeld, when the war starts, business will be very slow for weeks, if not months. I hereby promise, with Herr Schlossschauer's full agreement, he nodded, that your salary of 25 marks will not be cut during the first three months of war. Time enough to worry about things then, if you're still alive. In the following weeks, there was a veritable torrent of revocations, ultimatum, unsubstantiated stories, warmongering addresses to the populace, and patriotic editorials which stacked their emotive phrases round the power keg until on August 3rd, 1914, the thing really went up. And I can say, I was there when His Majesty the Kaiser roared forth his message of iron down from his topmost battlements to the crowded masses who had been waiting for hours down in the pleasure gardens. Although, despite the bullhorn that his servant was holding in front of his snout, no one could understand a word. Not until that evening could you read eagerly in the local papers what you had applauded so heartily during the day. There's also something that I had seen the evening before that wasn't in any of the papers. Workers, lefties, so-called unpatriotic rabble, were marching behind the red flags to demonstrate against the war. The police organized a hunt and shot down large numbers of them. Gradually it dawned on me that the powers of darkness were at work and that it was goodbye to the freedoms, including freedom of the press, that we had never had. There were no political parties anymore, just Germans. 
the left was done for. In the weeks leading up to the war, I'd smiled smugly at the childish worries of grown-ups. Having imbibed with my mother's milk such prejudices as morality, progress, civilization, I knew with rock-hard certainty, unshakable until the very last minute, that war was an impossibility. 25 years later, in 1939, I thought just as wrongly in Paris that the war would leave me in peace. Convinced that the youth of the precise moment would seize the reins, my money was on a worldwide spiritual revolution by the eminently comfortable means of passive resistance. After the First World War, I demanded in a manifesto that all those responsible for the war, everyone over 40 that is, should be shot at dawn. That manifesto ended up, like 90% of my collected writings, in the waste paper basket. And nowadays, the one-time passive revolutionary himself wanders the world as a somewhat sheepish over 40, and he hasn't been shot at dawn either. At that time, every German mother was all too ready to sacrifice all that was dearest to her on the altars of the fatherland. Her golden wedding ring, her long blonde tresses, her sons. In those great days of our country's need, my own mother, already sorely tired, poor and consumptive, had no desire to leave her offspring to their own devices. All came to pass as the prophet Otto Moses had foretold. After a brief transitional period, business was soon booming. While I was busy putting on nearly four ounces in weight and growing eighths of an inch, Supreme Command obligingly lowered their minimum height requirements by a full two inches. Even dwarfs were called up to serve as sappers. If things went on that way, I could soon be passing my entrance exams for the mass grave with flying colors. And so I had to think up a few ways and means of undermining my health. Maybe I could give myself a dicky heart by pursuing a program of unbridled lust. I decided to debauch the nights away. I became a roué, dissipated my way through the blackout, frequented dubious nightclubs and clip joints, went to dodgy shows from the Metropole to the Winter Garden to the Follies. I went to the Amour dance halls, the Stettin singers, low-grade hops, mostly on my own, a melancholy and bored shop boy. I puffed at Brazilian cigars, drank black ersatz coffee while it lasted, they're already sweetening it with saccharin, and I got experimentally drunk on a range of exotic-sounding drinks. I went through the entire alphabet, from absinthe to arak to aramac to anisette. I felt sick even before I had my second glass. If one of the hostesses came near me, I shook like a leaf. I sank, terrified, into the earth. You need cash for debauchery just as much as you need for waging wars. Money, money and more money. The fatherland, sinking further and further into the mire, was taking everyone and everything down with it. Soon I was to breathe my last as a civilian. In August, I was still on the road as a traveling salesman, sent off to do the rounds in Magdeburg, Dessau, Brunswick, and Halberstadt with a collection of morning clothes, morning dresses, and morning blouses, all packed up in seven suitcases with two girls to model them all, and also Robert, one of the servants. My sales figures were great, and my experiences in a medieval alley full of brothels were also to my advantage. 
On October 13, 1916, the latest conscription board pronounced me fit for active service, and since I knew nothing about cars, I was assigned to be a truck driver. If it barks like a dog, it must be a cat. And so, in bitchy cold November weather, I swapped the embattled gloom of home for the gloomy battlefield by way of the battle-dress-coloured gloom of a basic training hell in Zwickau in Saxony. Our battalion of recruits was quartered in a dance hall called Paradise, and that unheated paradise was worse than any hell. Anyway, on the horizon, you could already feel the first thunderous rumblings of the boundless German talent for concentration camps. In those days, parade ground sadism gorged itself on us, the recruits. It is firmly rooted in the essence of human kindness to enjoy torturing the new boys. On your feet and do your beds! Your made-up bed was supposed to look like a child's coffin. In the bunk above me was a bloke who used to wet the bed, and every night there was a drip, drip, dripping surely and slowly as a limestone cave. At four in the morning, the platoon leader drove us with his rabid barking, hands off your cocks, on with your socks, out into the frosty winter's night to the wash tub for mess gear, down at the frozen pond, hack a hole in the ice, and with pumice stone instead of soap. A handout of ersatz coffee and hours of attention livened up with knee-bend sessions outside paradise in the snow when it was 40 below in the shade. Up, down, hit the ground, up, up, hands on your sides, eyes forward, chin down, chest out, belly in, discipline, orders is orders. When everything was frozen solid, out came the staff bastard Sergeant Peters from the orderly room and belched, Flail out! And we were all kicked off like grease lightning. And then came another attention. And then pay parade. A frozen rate of three marks. And after that came any complaints? Any complaints about the money, the bread, the food, or any other relevant matter? Fall out and report them now. I see silence. Never in the history of the German army has anyone come forward. Since no soldier has any complaints... This pay parade is over. Then he shouted to the duty corporal Brandy, known as Shot of Brandy, because he once shot a recruit dead by mistake, gets the bastards to laugh. Then the Sarge gave a friendly snarl of, polish their balls until their asses glow. In other words, latrine duty, scrubbing the shithouse with a toothbrush. Junior medical officers pump shots of benzol, which is a coal tar product consisting mainly of benzene and toluene, into your chest to swell the courage of the German he-man. And all this turned pimply wimps into German heroes ready for the front line. The oath of allegiance administered in a snowstorm, the horribly itchy feeling of my new all-over sixteenth of an inch haircut, sentry duty at night, Rags wrapped around sore and sweaty feet run ragged and stuffed into rock-hard army knee boots that had layers of filth on them dating back to the Napoleonic Wars from 1813 to 1815. No deity could have cleansed their souls, but we had to. Off-duty, beer swilling into the last hour, buying drinks for the non-commissioned officers, chain-smoking to the point of zero visibility, 
pinching the barmaid's bottoms, being big men, pouring 20 glasses of rye down the old neck, puking as a company. What a bestial pack of shitheads. I came to hate the whole shit heap of them. Shits to a man. A whole load of shit. Who gives a shit? From the shit shaving and shower on a shitty morning, out to do your shitty duty in a shit awful weather, in a war that was complete shit, then shitty grub that you shit away ten minutes later in the shit house. Everything you do is shit. And then they shit on you. Before you know where you are, you're used to the shit. And after a week or so, you're as happy as a pig in shit. With some surprise, we realized that we'd left our worries behind us back home. Now the barracks were home, and what you were afraid of was the front, as the list of those who were killed or wounded got longer and longer. The safest place to be was the clink. You were only really free and protected when you were in jail. But no one really had the guts for that. In the Audi works, I became a motor mechanic, sitting at the wheel of an open car from the driving school and roaring at maximum speed of 12 miles an hour through the snowy Saxony scenery set you up as a superman. You weren't some ordinary foot slogger, some poor bloody infantryman. No, indeed, you were a gentleman driver. Christmas leave in uniform to Bonn, where I met my fiancée-to-be, Lancia, chaperoned by her mama, a friendly little widow of 40, at the house of her ancient and diminutive grandma. You don't only marry your beloved, you get her family as well. A week of blessedly exciting peace, and then back to Zwickau. Three months later, in March 1917, I was sent to the front as an ambulance driver, with a Red Cross armband, something which had the distinct drawback that if you were taken prisoner, you were immediately exchanged again. Before we left, we were fitted up in Berlin with a splendid leather uniform and a glorious long leather coat. We were taken in spanking new Mercedes ambulances, which were loaded with us onto the goods train at the Anhalt station. My brother Heinz saw me off. I never saw him again. In 1918, during the last weeks of the First World War, he was killed in action on the Marne, sacrificing his 18-year-old life for the German fatherland, Jewish family life, and a world gone mad. The most grievous loss of my life. We were loaded like human livestock into freight trucks and taken to ambulance depot number 7, just outside Notre-Dame-de-Lies. The first days at the front were as bad as the first day as recruits at Zwickau. However, by now, we had learned to get used to the worse. Double rations of schnapps and also of notorious make-it-droop soup laced with bromide helped us get over our initial homesickness. I wept hot tears over the first louse that I wormed out of my armpit, but it wasn't long before we were laughing in the Lyceum, the de-lousing unit where you failed to get rid of the dear little pets. Even the lice had their own iron crosses, black on white backgrounds. The ordinary lice looked down with disdain on the crab lice. Carnal prostitution smiles gently down upon the prostitution of the soul. 
The first French woman I saw squatting down without embarrassment in my presence in a public urinal to have a pee made my flesh creep. Cesse la guerre. It's the war. The first child's corpse I had to pull out of a bombed building made me throw up. Cesse la guerre. It's the war. Soon, fears of having to die a hero's death were supplanted by fears of life after the war, of the wretched existence of the middle classes. Looking back, nobody has ever had it as good as when they were on active duty. That's why there will always be wars. Cesse la guerre. It's the war. I've been assigned to a field hospital in the 7th Army, the Saxons, that was operating feverishly out of Ardon. Defying death itself, two field ambulances had to be taken to the line, under the drum fire and constant barrage, protected by the Red Cross on the trip through the heaviest shelling and all the noise of the Last Judgment right to the front line. And we drove, drove, drove through days that were too bright and nights that were too dark. And the courage I never had became so tired and the longing so great. Taking no account of materials or personnel HQ ordered, I fell in love with the unforgettable names of these French villages dotted around the landscape. Our field ambulances were equipped with four narrow stretchers. When business was booming, at least two seriously wounded men were tied onto each one. They were too narrow even for one man. Going like the wind, at a maximum speed of 12 miles per hour, we hurtled with our whimpering cargo, first of all back to our hospital at Ardon for unloading, sorting and labelling. Usually four of the eight were dead on arrival. I became a corpse carrier. On one of the first nights, driving with neither lights nor experience, I tipped over the old bus full of wounded when I was taking a sharp bend. The dying soldiers yelled out in the overturned ambulance. Exhausted, I lay down to have a sleep. Only one person came out of it alive. Me. The gymnasium of the village school served as the main ward, and when we got there, the junior medical officer, von Scholzenberg, decided on the spot who was to be thrown into the cellar under the gym where the coal went rumbling down in peacetime. You can't please the living, but a dying man is eternally grateful, he would say with a knowing medical smile. Screams of despair from the underworld gave the lie to this statement, whilst those who remained upstairs were tortured with anti-tetanus shots. When the field hospital at Ardon was too full, I had to peddle the maligners, who were making rapid progress to becoming corpses, around in the little backwater villages until I finally managed to get rid of them in some hinterland hospital well beyond the lines. It was splendid, dawdling through this lovely world, safely out of danger. First of all, zigzagging up the steep hill through the Middle Ages, from Port de Ardon to Léon Cathedral, majestically dominating the landscape. That cathedral was my heavenly mistress in the First World War. The summer got hotter and hotter. Ardon's gravedigger had given up. There wasn't enough quicklime and carbonic acid. In spite of tighter martial laws, it was impossible to force the civilian population to bury our dear departed, who, in their own way, were screaming out for their eternal rest. They stank. To the delight of the flies above, their cries stank to high heaven. 
the stench of a hundred bloody corpses crammed together in a cellar is a wonder of nature, especially in summer. We kept our gas masks on all the time. Seriously wounded men suffocated because of the stench. Even wearing masks, the doctors found it impossible to carry out their operations. The garrison commander ordered the people of Ardon to pay the burial costs of the deceased heroes. His order did not, however, get the corpses out of the cellar and into the mass grave. My good friend, comrade Gus Kulmai, salt of the earth, if you know what I mean, was square as wide as he was tall, five by five. The merry, merry month of Kulmai has arrived. Twice my age, he was an old man. Before the war, he had worked by turns as a removal man in the Rixdorf and as a pig slaughterer in Pankow. Kulmai's motto was, no one fucks me, I fuck them all. What was mine was his. Without a word, he took everything from me. With fewer words, he would have killed anyone else who dared swipe even the tiniest thing from me. When it came to unobtrusively cutting the money pouch from dying soldiers and then going through their pockets, he was your trustworthy German monster. One night, he claimed to have carried a grand piano unaided on his back. Instruments like this were of strategic importance since our lieutenant had discovered that their lids were ideal for displaying large-scale maps. You got a double ration of schnapps for every grand piano lid you brought him. Dr. Rosencrantz, the medical officer, in his command voice, commanding is an art, much like yodeling, he gave us a direct official order, first to pack up all the corpses in the cellar individually and then to get them out unobtrusively. The village was apparently to provide a transport cart with two horses, a driver and an assistant to take all these packages off to a mass grave. The medical officer, Dr. Rosencrantz, lowered his voice. Here's the good news. I have fixed it so that the people of Ardon have to come up with three marks compensation for every deceased hero in their schoolhouse. For every corpse you bring up, you get 50 pfennigs. The rest will be divided between the officers and the Red Cross. Dupont, the village schoolmaster, is in charge of counting the bags as they are loaded. A grateful Kulmai shouted at the top of his voice, Orders are orders! Shake a leg! Up the fatherland! The medical officer shouted, Shut your trap! back at him, and Kulmai matched this with, At once, senior medical officer, sir! Even I couldn't control myself any longer and shouted out one of the official short military laughs. Kulmai's diabolical little piggy eyes twinkled, full of promise. Before we could sort out how we were going to divide up the task, I got an order to go immediately to pick up some heavy casualties at the frontline clearing station at Filien. Gus gave me a few final instructions. Don't leave a single bloody Saxon soldier hanging on the wire. Every corpse is worth money, and don't bring them back if they're still alive. They can wait. An hour later, my ambulance was staggering along between the shell holes of the Chemin de Dame on the way to Coffin Lid, casualty clearing station number 209. I'd been given triple schnapps ration because I was going into heavy fire, but Gus had guzzled it down, so I was standing there stone-cold sober in the middle of one of the bloodiest battles in the history of the world. Alone. Everything was exploding. Anything that had life had crept back into the ripped belly of Mother Nature. 
now violated for all time. Andreas Grufius's vision of hell, pain and misery, murder, death, terror, fear, cross, agony, worms, pestilence, black pitch, tortures, hangman, flame, stench, ghosts, cold, trembling, shell hole after shell hole, the sun's rays on a stark and empty moonscape, little cloudlets nailed to the sky and motionless, little puffs of shrapnel, little angels of death, a hand dangled on a bomb burst burnt tree stump, a horse split in two, whinnied in death rows a whole day long at the edge of the road. Some joker had put a signpost around its neck. I was afraid of the night to come. Here I was a fatalist. When I got to the dugout by the clearing station, I left my heavy steel helmet and gas mask hanging by the driver's seat and climbed down into the deep crater. While my ambulance was being filled up as rapidly as possible, I daringly stuck my head over the edge of the crater to see if I could attract some beloved French soldier, challenging fate to provide me with a slight wound. I didn't yet know that fate cannot be seduced. Back to Ardon with a full load, no room inside. Up to Léon, where I swapped my cargo for some bread and blood sausage. After that, off into the cul-de-sac, completely done in. I lay down on one of the blood-dripping stretchers in my ambulance and slept until I woke up dead tired and wondering if it was dawn or dusk. How I should have liked to just turn over and go back to sleep. But the sun was drowning in the far west and I didn't dare leave good old Gus in the lurch. I freewheeled with no gas, no gears, no brakes, down to Ardon and through the ruins of the Soissons Gate. Gus, of whom I was justifiably afraid, was snorting with fury when I presented myself in Ardon and shouted at me for having left him to do all the preparations on his own. Meanwhile, he had himself brought in 12 of the dead men in two loads and they were already parceled up, all proper and in good order, and were waiting in the schoolyard. Then he hissed, Sarge wants you in the orderly room. Double quick, he sent for you three times already. Even the corporal has been here. Blumenfeld sitting on his ass again. You'll probably get demoted to the Pioneer Corps for bunking off the whole bloody day. Staff Sergeant Kunz Kranz looked down at me with unwantonly generous irony from the steps of the orderly room. As soon as I slammed my heels together in the prescribed manner and said, Driver Blumenfeld reporting, sir, he gave me a very casual sort of command. At bloody ease, do you want to get an iron cross for bravery in the face of the enemy? Speechless, I said, mm, yes, sir. And at that point, the unthinkable became reality. God's reprobate on earth tore his glance away from my boots and looked me in the eye. His were a venomous green, and then he lost control. It's devastating to watch a real marionette turn into a whining beggar before your very eyes. I saw his inner struggle, his inability to keep a firm grasp on his emotions. This was too strong for him, and he underwent the full metamorphosis. His hands were pressed stiffly to the seams of his trousers, chin down, chest out, belly in, a staff officer standing to attention for me. 
Had I perhaps been killed in one of those double-strength battles, and was this already the world turned upside down with altered priorities, life after life, halfway house, up, down, and we, in poor spirit, suddenly exalted? Easily moved, I told the Sarge to stand at ease. With a voice like a whiny child, he explained, If you can teach me in a month French, I will get you the cross and ribbon, never mind that it isn't your turn. Yes, Sergeant Krantz, sir, I said, and my military tone turned him back into a sergeant again. Since I'm never quite on the ball at the crucial moment, but only afterwards, I didn't dare ask him to let me off the corpse-bagging detail. I've never been able to manage more to a superior than, yes, sir, right away, sir. I about faced, but he called me back in a genial manner. Don't worry, I am still letting you pick up your corpse money tonight. You Berlin Jews are all from the tribe of Grabit. Died in the wool businessmen. Dismiss, you godforsaken bloody corpse shagger. In front of our door, Kulnai gave off a blue aura. He had put on one of those asbestos uniforms they use against flamethrowers, and he was carrying a shaded acetylene lamp. Like a lemur, a spook, gibbering and twitching to get on with it all. We've been waiting for you. Now let's get going. There's money in this. Get the old asbestos on. It's highly contagious being dead. Full of glee, he pulled on his gas mask and vanished. The hay cart was waiting in the schoolyard with two horses and Pascal, the hunchback village idiot, as the coachman. At a tiny desk by the school gate sat the teacher Dupont, who was supposed to count the corpses, with a bottle in front of him. Beside the cellar entrance, there was a gigantic crate with the top ripped off and the brown paper corpse bags falling out. Up from the cellar came the shimmering light of Gus's lamp. A rattle of drum fire provided an accompaniment to the dance macabre. I pulled on my gas mask hard and climbed bravely down the 22 steps into the underworld where three ready-filled bags were waiting impatiently for me by the bottom step. I tried honestly to get my first corp up the stairs. The dead are a willful lot. They refuse to pull their weight. Just breathing is hard with a gas mask on, working even harder. I felt queasy, but under no circumstances did I want to look like a softie. A man of 20 has to be ready to cope with life and with death. Halfway up, it got easier. Gus was pushing from below. We brought the rest of the bags up together. In other words, Gus did it all. Having a break had given me new energy, and the next bag seemed lighter. I brought it up over my shoulders on my own and chucked it onto the cart with some vigor. The teacher counted conscientiously, fortifying himself at regular intervals. It wasn't until I went back down into the cellar that I found out what had made me so much stronger. In the blue light of his acetylene torch, a blood-bespattered Gus was furiously chopping a corpse in half over a tree stump, using a massive butcher's cleaver. With professional skill, he carved the roast with a long knife, helping out when necessary with a hacksaw. Gus would have been delighted to hack me into pieces as well. A prophetically diabolical imbreglio. His, Germany's future, and my fate were being hacked into pieces. 25 years later, and the world will be standing by watching just as I was now as millions of German Gusses butchered millions of people to keep the race of these stupid Gusses pure. As the next wagon load of 25 bags left the schoolyard, 
Gus came up for a breath of air and to get one down. "'Cause you're such a bloody Nancy that you can't even lift a whole corpse, I reckoned I better mix business with pleasure and double our turnover. No sooner said than done.' And fortified, he rushed back to his labours in the Shady Kingdom. When, several hours later, the magical silhouette of Léon Cathedral became visible again in the morning sky, the cellar was empty per orders, disinfected with carbolic acid. The last bag contained Kulmai's bloody asbestos uniform, for which we also got paid. Flabbergasted, the village teacher made it 168 corpses. He'd been told there were under 100, and Kulmai made it clear to me that I'd only get 20 marks. I never did see a brass farthing of that hard-earned blood money. A grudging fate decreed that I wasn't to have it. Dead tired, I reported to my French-learning Sarge the next morning on the dot of eight, and like the dutiful pupil, he stood up when I entered the room. I came with the noble intent of putting into operation a modern language-teaching method of my own devising. He found everything completely and unbelievably nutty. I asked him to bear with me. You could make amazing progress in a foreign language if you applied yourself with an iron will to getting your tongue and ear used to it. In this case, the easiest way would be to learn La Rouge et le Noir by heart. I opened the magic volume, La Petite Ville de Verrières, put passeur pour l'une des plus jolies de la Franche-Comté. I translated it, and he asked with considerable intelligence what that had to do with Scarlet and Black. I said that would be a surprise at the end. He gave me a direct order to tell him right now. I told him about the symbols, but that only annoyed him. Humbly, and in all the different voices you could use for seduction, I read the first sentence over and over and over until we were both so drunk that his servant had to drive me back to my quarters. For the next few days, I read that first sentence continuously. Suddenly, and to my great surprise, in an unmistakable Berlin accent, the sergeant began to venture a few French words. A major victory to which we drank. When he was nearly able to repeat the sentence by heart, I made a fundamental error. I went on to the second sentence. He ordered me to read the second sentence again and again. On my final attempt, he leapt up in a hysterical screaming fit, accused me of sabotage, threatened me with a court-martial, and tried to brain me with a cognac bottle. He hurled the bottle through the window pane and roared, Tension, you traitor! I stood in attention. Unfortunately, your Iron Cross second class has already gone through, but I'm not going to be dragged through the shit by a Jew called Blumenfeld. There's no room for maligners like you in my unit, understand? I'm transferring you to the Rebecca West, where they're looking for a bookkeeper. Early tomorrow morning, after roll call, you'll be transported. Dismissed! When I tried to object that I couldn't read books, he foamed, You can't keep books? You can shut your trap, or do you want me to have you going backwards and forwards day and night to the Chemin de Dames until you are on the list of casualties? Now bloody fall out, or you'll end up in a mass grave yourself. At the morning roll call, the smart Iron Cross was nailed onto my heroic little chest, and because it was the birthday of King Gussie of the Saxons, I got the Saxon Medal of Valor as a bonus. With sealed marching orders, I was dispatched to number 17, Rue de Juif, a knocked-out little back street 
closed shutters, an open house, maison close, army knocking shop number 209. Outside the closed door, there was a queue of clapped-out infantrymen standing in line, dirty, louse-ridden and diseased. I was expected because my predecessor had been sent home with a chronic dose of the clap, and now I was to serve the fatherland as an army brothel bookkeeper for serve one must, right down to the last man. My place in the sun was behind a large, open account book at a narrow desk in the entrance hall. I was pretty narrow myself. Besides, there were 18 ladies working in the house. Six of them were reserved for officers, from warrant officer upwards. While the soldiers' girls had a minimum servicing quota set at 30 men per day, the daily turnover of the officers' ladies was only 25. What's more, the officers had condom privileges. These were much sought-after rarities on account of the rubber shortage, and after use, they were dried, blown up like balloons, and hung on the washing line so that they could be sold again as new. We didn't open for business until the pleasantly late hour of 10 in the morning. We closed at curfew. As an important frontline soldier miles behind the line, I got double combat rations here, double schnapps, ersatz honey and sausage. My work was simple, but like everything else in this house, not fully satisfying. I was supposed to record in my running account ledger, after each numbered entry, the name and number of the girl, the room number and the precise start and finish times. Next to that, I had to note that I had received the unit price of four marks, then duly listed as divided on a debit and credit basis, one mark for the girl, one for the owner of the house, Madame Duval, and the remaining two marks, noted in red ink, for the Red Cross, which for this payment took upon itself the medico-moral responsibility for this particular military undertaking. In order to increase turnover, our business-oriented military authorities had transformed the once capacious rooms of the brothel into little love nests by means of a wooden partition. These were not a lot bigger, but very much dirtier than dog kennels. For a happy, loving couple, the smallest cottage will suffice, quoted the local commander. On the iron bedstead, there lay a narrow and damp mattress, half stuffed with even damper seagrass and no sheets. Behind the metal number plate on the door was a spy hole through which you could check that everything was going according to regulations. Through this hole, I learned more about the ins and outs of life than were dreamt of in our school philosophy. Always the same awkwardness in a love life that had nothing to do with love and nothing to do with life. By and large, the ordinary soldiers behaved better than the officers who swilled champagne and played at being bon viands which sometimes led to indignities. Where the men wanted to be on their own with their lovers, the sophisticated officers were partial to group sex. In extreme cases, I had to raise the military police by using a secret bell push. Of course, the officers always got away with it. After 15 minutes of purest happiness, an alarm clock would shrill, and there was forever a bell going off somewhere in the house. The cathedral bells chimed in harmony and counterpoint with the in-house horology. The holy trinity of church, barracks, and whorehouse form a holy flexible triangle. You put me down blindfold in front of the cathedral, and I'll find my way back to the knocking shop without any trouble at all. Letters from soldiers in the field to foreign countries were strictly forbidden, so the lively correspondence between me and my fiancée Lancia in Holland 
had to pass through an elderly maiden lady in Cologne who neither of us knew, whose name was Clementine. Clem for short, a monocle-wearing lesbian. She got her well-earned reward just from being able to participate in our epistolary love games. By using a code, I was able to tell my fiancé about my plans to desert the military, so that there was the romantic possibility that I might even make my getaway under the admiring gaze of her blue eyes. And what's more, on a Sunday, since I'd found out that border security was less tight on the Lord's day off. After a sleepless night, I made my way to the little local station at seven in the morning, an hour before the train was due. I'd imagine a deserter's special, crammed with hundreds of others like me who just wanted to get out. There was only one train on Sunday, which consisted of a little toy engine which ran on Pete, a single goods wagon, and one wooden fourth-class passenger carriage. A crazy bell kept on ringing incessantly. At eight o'clock, the ticket man come railway policeman come guard, now wearing a battle dress grey cap, joined me in the train, blew his whistle out the glassless window, and the little toy town choo-choo set off. Not knowing how to handle things, I took a drink from my flask and wished him a cheery good luck. He drank my brandy and asked jokingly if I was planning to desert to join my girlfriend in Holland. You can tell me, don't worry. I'm military police, Corporal Haas, railway division. If I had a wartime sweetheart in Holland, I'd have been off ages ago to the land of fat cows. Unfortunately, if you make it alive into Holland, the first thing they do is lock you in a starvation camp. They've got a funny word for it, concentration camp. The guard continued, The war's coming to an end anyway, and everybody's had enough. The froggies are clamoring for a separate peace deal, and we'll soon all be back home with Mama. Eventually, we got to the border, which was just behind the village. Right across the street was another threatening sign. Warning, high tension, 18,000 volts, dangerous dogs, minefields, military personnel not in possession of a frontier paper will be shot in sight. Sign the Frontier Commander Stulpagnel. Knife rest barricades with barbed wire entanglements barred the way in the deep snow. To the right and left were unmanned pillboxes and not a soul to be seen. A placard which said Death Zone persuaded me to stop. I did an about turn, a coward defeated by fate for whom everything had gone wrong. I was still to learn that cruel twists of fate are the norm. If I'd marched straight ahead, I would either have walked uninterrupted into peaceful Holland or sizzled my way to eternity on the electrified fence. Since then, I've become aware that much advertised threats are worthless, but I can still never sum up the courage to cross death zones. When the station bell began to ring, the same guard that I'd taken the train with turned up and hustled me back onto the train for the return journey. It was night. On the way back, he revealed that the high-tension fence had been turned off for two days for repairs to the dynamo. At Field Brothel 209, before starting work in the morning, Arabella never missed mass at Saint-Géry, where she would collect little glass vials from the abbé in the confessional. She distributed these vials filled with cultures of Spirocheta pelida, to the whores, which seemed superfluous since everyone was pretty thoroughly infected anyway. 
Still, she guaranteed that every visitor to the field brothel would, with a probability that bordered on certainty, be infected with syphilis. One morning, Arabella was arrested coming out of the church and incriminating material was found on her. Someone had spilled the beans. The priest had vanished. The woman who had run the brothel was found strangled in her bed. Even Pascal, the village idiot, came under suspicion. Field brothel number 209 was closed down. There were official cross-examinations. A lot of people were held on remand. I had to swear under oath that I'd never noticed a thing. Arabella was court-martialed, shot under German military law, and shouted, Vive la France, as it happened. She ended up riddled with bullets in a ditch by the walls of the prison. With the field brothel closed, I had to go to a hellhole of a base camp at Ghent, which was even more infernal than Zwickau, because since then we had a taste of frontline freedom. We rotted in the unheated misery of the barracks. In the middle of January 1918, I joined the starvation column, motorized unit 209, the rumbling guts brigade. After a week of deathly silence, our artillery suddenly let off a ferocious round of drum fire. Without regard for men or materials, and not a single enemy gun bothered to respond. So I decided to set fire to my truck when it was fully loaded with ammunition. The day's password was self-detonation and watch the fireworks from a dugout. Unfortunately, I immediately got another truck whose driver had decided to die of dysentery. In the ghostly cemetery of Rossier-en-Santerre, which had been churned up by the shelling and which put Andreas Griefius's baroque sequence of graveyard lyrics into the shade, I dispatched with the only shot I fired during the First World War a fat St. Bernard dog that had a soldier's foot, still with the boot on it, in its mouth. One of my fellow soldiers contributed two dead cats. Hunger is the best source, but we had been spoiled. The color of the meat took away our appetites. The yellow flesh of the graveyard cats was not exactly in harmony with the light gray color of the braised St. Bernard. Funeral baked meats with a vengeance. Since that time, I have never at any point in my life knowingly eaten roasted cat or dog again. I firmly intended never to come back to this terminally dangerous German front, at the front line of the most mindless stupidity. After my frontier experiences in Flanders, it was quite clear to me that an escape was perfectly possible with thorough preparations from the Dutch side. My fiancé had already taken the first steps towards these preparations. Back at the Ghent HQ, one of the orderly room big boys got me, on payment of two potatoes, a duplicate leave pass with all the right rubber stamps, onto which I typed, using the office machine, permission for myself to wear civvies. Under destination, I added Berlin, also Herzogenrath, near Aschen, at the border, with the proposed purpose of visiting an uncle. Armed with this, I travelled through my broken-down homeland back to Mama, and, what's more, I used the duplicate leave pass, which became valid by acquiring innumerable extra rubber stamps whenever it was checked on the way. Everything depended upon whether my fiancé in Holland had succeeded in getting a German visa, and this was a question of bribery and corruption. Being on leave with just my mother would have made it absolute hell. Worse than being at the front, I'd have actually been longing to get back there. 
after I'd sat on my kit bag for two days and nights, I got out at Zoo Station in pitch darkness and dragged myself and my luggage through a ravaged and savage Berlin to our flat at 23 Leopoldstrasse. The dead city was ashen gray, and I was at a loss with a lost war in this lost world. What would become of our love with no life? I hadn't slept in a bed for more than a year, and I was tired out. At four in the morning, just as dawn was breaking, my by now cruelly eroded mama wrapped her bony arms around me. Worry, war, and tuberculosis had reduced her to the shadow of a skeleton. After three hours of dreamless sleep, a telephone call from my fiancé brought me back to life. Without asking permission from my morally offended mother, I rushed out of the house in a blue civvy suit, straight into the arms of my darling fiancé, who was waiting for me, her eyes a little red. Trembling with emotion, we fell into each other's arms and gazed at each other in rapturous wonderment, dissolved in sheer bliss, couldn't believe it was happening, found that we had aged beyond our years, matured, reached a new spiritual plane, and so much to say to each other that words failed us completely, and we could only stare at each other with wan smiles of happiness before we even dared to kiss. We were almost blind to the horrors of the colorless streets that we strolled, arms around each other's waists along the park. What did we care about the hell that was all around us anyway? Ragged war ghosts tussled with blind cripples in wheelchairs as they queued, ration cards clutched tightly in their hands outside grocery stores that had already been plundered. Lena, my fiancé, had got everything ready in Holland. On June 26, a man would telephone us at 10 o'clock in the morning and ask if we wanted to buy some books. If we said yes, I was to set off on the train bareheaded at the Hertzgenrath on the way back to the front. A man carrying a dark green suitcase in his right hand and a brown one in the other would ask me on the platform when the next train to Aschen was leaving and I was to follow him to the gents, where I would swap my uniform for a farm worker's jacket that he'd have in the suitcase. Then I was to go with him to an inn, from which I would be taken over the border to Holland that night. The people smugglers had already been paid 100 guilders, and as soon as I arrived over the border on the other side, they'd have been paid another 300. It was all clear and straightforward. My heart was pounding with fear. Of course it was dangerous, but it was far more dangerous at the front, so I had no choice. The man was due to ring in only three days' time, and there was only one answer. Yes, coward that I was, my throat tightened up completely. We swore not to discuss this plan of escape with anyone at all, and if anyone asked us, we'd deny all knowledge of it. On Sunday, Mama served a festive meal in our honor, just for the three of us, as there wasn't any more food. Everything went wrong. The preserved chicken was now served and found to be moldy. Mother wept for shame since she considered herself to be the great preserver. Since she was so upset, she also managed to burn three potatoes, her monthly ration. Mama, just to make conversation, asked how I, a notorious layabout, really pictured my own future. A rosy one, I said with annoyance, and then, to my horror, I heard myself go on. And... 
The first letter you get from me after this leave will come from Holland. I'm not going back to the front. Mama leapt up from her chair and shouted in a doom-laden voice, Better dead in the trenches than a traitor! My fiancé Lena, tears clouding the blue skies of her eyes on account of my having broken my word so fatally, stood up and tried to get away from this family's storm. When I got up with her, my mother rose up like some terrifying skeleton at a feast and hurled at my poor fiancé the classic line, You whore! You've stolen my son! And out she went, spitting blood and slamming all the doors behind her until she locked herself whimpering in the bedroom in order to telephone around to tell people what I was up to. Two days later, on the morning of June 26, at 9 o'clock in the morning, there had already been a call for us. Someone would be coming at half past nine to talk to us both. This was not the plan. We had been betrayed by my mother, all sold out by the people smugglers. We just realized with horror that it was impossible to escape from our fate when the doorbell rang. My fiancé went into the corridor to open the door, and I watched through a crack. A tall and blue-eyed blonde type extracted a sheet of paper from his briefcase and read out, In the name of His Majesty the Kaiser, Emperor of Germany and King of Prussia, blah, 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 you are both now under arrest. A little man who had been waiting halfway down the stairs now came up and gave orders. At the slightest sign of resistance or attempt to escape, you will be shot. Hurry up, be quick. While Lena put on her straw hat very slowly, we were trying to gain time and to stop fate in its tracks. The two heavies frisked me for hidden weapons. Slowly, the four of us set off. I was sandwiched between the tall one and the short one. At military headquarters in Berlin, we were taken through dark corridors and passageways to an orderly room where a sergeant permitted the lady, as soon as he had established that she was a neutral from Holland, to sit down. In came the much-decorated Captain Blood with a bushy moustache and a sword who clicked his heels so hard in front of my fiancé that the whole building shook, saluted, and then bellowed at me why I wasn't at attention. Because I'm out of uniform, sir. Criminals are always in civvies. Nevertheless, you can stand to attention, you odious little bastard. What will the lady think of the discipline in the German army? I stood as rigidly to attention as I could and shouted back, Yes, sir. He snarled at the sergeant. Get this traitor and his fiancée out of here. Keep them apart and take them to Kumpfengarden. And then the gallows. Attention! And then with that, he disappeared into the wings, leaving me standing attentively at attention and waiting and waiting and waiting. War is a series of long waits, interrupted by brief periods of slaughter. Lena was led away by a sadistic-looking, black-clad virago, and the sergeant departed with his files. Two hours later, Lena was released, and I was brought to the Kumpfengarden courts. My chains were taken off, and I was shut in a little cage in a dark corridor. Between the cages, there were conversations going on in impenetrable dialects. The hearing began in a rather silly, chatty tone. Your charming fiancé was made it all very easy for us by confessing to everything, and 
I mean everything. In recognition of this, we have already released this most sensible lady. You know, there is a death penalty for desertion, just as there is for cowardice in the face of the enemy. With my help, you'll get a life sentence, and after Germany has won the war, which can't be long now, your sentence will be reduced to 10 years in jail. That sounds worse than it is. With good behavior, you'll be out in nine years. If you come back to the front, you'd have cause to worry about your future. So why don't you just come out and tell us? Stop making things so difficult for both of us. Come on, tell us. What is your signature anyway? I want to go home too. Are you prepared to sign a full confession of guilt? I stood to attention, clicked my heels and shouted, Lieutenant, sir, as a frontline soldier, I would be proud to die for Germany, my fatherland. He gave an angry laugh. Idiot, you haven't been condemned to death yet. And anyway, you don't have to trot out any patriotic nonsense for my benefit. I'm the examining officer. And when I look at you, I know what I'm seeing. He looked at his watch. I will tell you one thing. My willingness to help and my patience are both slowly running out. And before long, you'll see another side of me. We will torture you. We will starve you. We will break you down three days without bread and water. And you'll soon be begging us to let you go. And you will say what we want to hear. Just don't make me mad. You frontline bastards don't know what hunger is. It's back here at home where we're starving for victory. And then, as if heaven sent and without paying any attention to anything that was going on, there stepped between me and my grand inquisitor, a man who opened his attaché case with a ceremonial gesture and constructed before our eyes on the desk a still live of bread, butter, sugar, after which he took out a shopping bag of eggs, a chicken, and several cups of meat. My existence was pushed completely into the background by the appearance of foodstuffs, and that gave me time to weigh my situation. The prosecution had nothing except my mother's denunciation of me. The officer turned to me abruptly and shouted, What's he doing here? He leapt up angrily, buckled on his gun belt, swapped his horn-rimmed glasses for a monocle, went to the mirror and put his cap on at a jaunty angle, and then instructed the clerk, Obviously guilty. A house search is bound to turn up decisive evidence. Then he can be court-martialed and shot. Put the handcuffs back on him and get him off to the Alexander Platz jail in the next paddy wagon. After half an hour, bells rang and trumpets blared out. Key jangling guards fetched us one after the other, doing their best to hurt us while they were at it. Everyone was glad that something was happening. There were seven of us, each of us taken downstairs between two guards. Waiting for us there was a horse-drawn bus from my childhood memories, which had been transformed into a paddy wagon by the addition of bars on the windows and some muddy green camouflage. My fiancé was waiting there as well, and I was able to whisper to her to destroy the evidence at home. She knew where a certain bundle of letters had been hidden away. Our eyes met in a kiss of eternal farewell. By every seat was a chain which was locked around your wrist. The guard detail with ammunition pouches on their belts, rifles at the ready and steel helmets in the June sunshine stood on the back platform of the bus. 
Everyone seemed to be happy enough with their lot and in good spirits. I, the youngest, was the only one to hang my head, and they laughed at me for being such a mummy's boy. The professional pickpocket was able to get his hand in and out of the handcuff with magical ease and even made the guards laugh. Just before dark, our bus stopped outside the prison doors. A little window was opened from the inside, and our driver passed in an envelope and was given a key with which he opened the large wooden doors. We were prisoners. There was no question of escape. Since no one had a watch anymore, time no longer existed. However, bells rang all the time. It seemed to be well after midnight when my number was called. The prison guard opened up the cell, which wasn't much bigger than a child's coffin. Hot and airless. No bed, no chair. The only item of furniture was a slop bucket with a wooden lid to sit on. The cot was folded up against the wall and chain, and you were only allowed to lower it at night. Then there wasn't anywhere to stand in the cell. He went out, bolted me in, opened the hatch from the outside, and whispered fiercely, If you have any dough, hand it over and I'll look after it for you. I've got a lot to offer, pal, and contact with the outside world is just one of them. Just to get one thing clear, if you don't give me everything you've got, you're finished. I mean finished. Everyone had something important to say. Matters of life and death, crimes, greed, passion, the total fulfillment of the feverish nightmares of my childhood, the torments of hell. Most hellish of these pains was having to march along at the double in single file through the corridors down to the latrines for slopping out, in the course of which the court jester always tripped me up. A day later, a couple of plainclothes policemen took me back to the Kumpfengarden court for a second hearing, on foot and without any handcuffs. At noon on the next day, I was fetched out of my cell and hustled into signing several different papers in a great rush. I got my leave pass back and a set of orders for the front, which I had to present at 10.30 that same night to the railway military police at Frederikstrasse station. From there, I'd be sent back to my unit under military guard in a train leaving at 1.30 via Aschen and Brussels. I was taken by subterranean passengers out of the prison and into the fresh air. So there I stood, a completely free man in Alexanderplatz, alone, unshaven and unwashed, without a handkerchief, without a penny to my name, without knowing a soul in the area. I was done for and without any idea of how I was going to make the long journey back home. I fell asleep on a bench in the park off Lowen Alley, where I used to play as a child. The park keeper, who I'd been afraid of even then, chased me away. The next day when I got home, Mama opened the door to the flat, having apparently been waiting behind it so that she could fall pathetically to her knees before me. With trembling lower lip and eyes red and bloodshot from weeping, she swore that she was innocent in this whole catastrophe. I washed, shaved with a blunt razor. I greedily devoured a sausage made from turnip and oatmeal without saying a word. With it, I drank a bottle of wine from Mama's wedding, of which she still had 60 bottles stored in the cellar. Then I fell asleep and woke up at nine with a scream of terror. I nearly missed the train back. Mama sat in the next room, weeping, completely worn out. 
I climbed wearily back into my hated battle dress and packed my belongings into my kit bag. Mama would not be deprived of the chance to accompany her eldest son to the station. At the station, they put rubber stamps all over my marching orders and then threw them into the waste paper basket. So the war really was lost. We all had to stand jammed together in the overcrowded slowed train like herrings in a barrel, just like in prison with everyone completely depressed and not a trace of even black humour as we were on our way to our own execution, travelling from one delay to the next. I still don't know to this day what really happened then, and I didn't know at the time either. I've been through and dreamed about this fantasy so often that the reality is no longer relevant. Anyway, doesn't our imagination distort even everyday happenings? On July 5th, 1918, I reported to the orderly room in my unit at Vieux Condé, back from leave, present and correct. The duty sergeant looked me up and down in an ironic and knowing manner, as if he knew the whole story, and then told me I was dismissed. He knew nothing. On the 19th of July, I wrote to my brother Heinz. Dear brother, back in Flanders, just spending a day or two here at the base. A fortnight ago, arrested with Lena. Lena deported. I was set free on the last day after innocence proven. Mama triumphant, swears she knew nothing about the whole thing. Mama says better dead in the trenches than a traitor because she is scared. I hope you're still alive. Your brother, Erwin. Three weeks later, when they distributed our letters, I got this one back with a note written right across the address. Killed in battle. Return to sender. The word return was underlined in blue pencil. After mail parade, I took myself off with this letter to the latrines. I dropped my trousers and wept. Behind some bushes just opposite, the German popular spirit was hiding. As I was staring at my letter to my dead brother, wretchedly and precariously balancing on the latrine pole, a clod of earth thrown at me by my comrades in arms hit me in the chest. I lost my balance and hurtled down into the stinking depths of German filth. Even though the history of the world records just as many defeats as victories, the military establishment tends to plan its advances more thoroughly than its withdrawals. The front had collapsed and now our retreat was collapsing. In order to keep up the morale of the troops, the word was put out that our flight was actually a movement forward in the direction of home. We were drowning in lies. Nobody believed the one glorious truth, that the war would soon be over. Everyone had longed for the end, but no one had imagined it. Certainly not like this. On November 10th, 1918, in frost that made your teeth chatter, we went at a snail's pace, step by step, along roads that had become impassable because of the mud and snow around ragged foot sloggers and vehicles that had got stuck. The only thing that drove everyone on was the fear of being left behind. The night before peace broke out, we parked in the market square of La Louvière, the field kitchen cooked up pea soup with smoked bacon while patrols stood guard to make sure that none of our stolen stuff got stolen. My truck was standing in front of a pub. Maybe there was still a last glass of bitter Belgian beer to be had. In a dark corner of the empty pub, 
sat a girl with long flowing blonde tresses, kitschy as a picture. Germaine, the owner's daughter, pretended to be amazed at my French and the fact that I was on their side. No woman's hand had touched mine since July. I trembled, and Germaine trembled back. She whispered in my ear that I should come back later. When I came back, the door wasn't locked. I went through a little antechamber, and a lighted candle showed me the way to the semi-darkness of her bedroom. She was sitting on the edge of a double bed, wearing a chemise. Beside her laid an old woman who was snoring. Germaine reassured me, Mama is deaf and dumb. You can say anything that you like. I couldn't get a single word out. She was so far above me. I was lost in admiration. Before I was able to approach her, she sent me back to wait in the antechamber. I had no choice but to obey. It was unbelievably dark. Midnight struck and the 10th of November became the 11th. Then in she came, white with powder, in her nightdress, tall and slim in the glory of her long and golden hair, and she lit up the whole room. She seemed to be sorry for me. We sat there, and our knees touched lightly against one another. No need to tremble, petit chauffeur. I'm not a witch, and I like you. Only a beginner would think he could conquer a love goddess on the first night, especially just having given me only a few stolen cigarettes. Then she used a phrase I thought was original until I heard it later on from every whore in Paris. After the war, you will come back here as a man so that you do not forget me. I'll teach you how to lose yourself and plunge into the internal depths of heaven. Let your eyes look into mine deeper and deeper, deeper and deeper. The moment is all. Life is nothing. Entranced by the billowing bridal veil of her blondness, I sunk, unresisting, into her eyes until a torrent of ecstasy coursed through my veins. Paralyzed by the magic of this paradisical witch's Sabbath, I fell into a deep sleep. To enable me to come here and discover the secret of love, millions of men had to lose their lives. A poetic kiss on the forehead awakened me before dawn, on November 11th. As I left, Germaine's shadow flickered behind the curtains. I've tried in vain in the intervening years to find her again, and anyone who has eyes to see can find her in every one of my portraits of women. Germany had suffered a glorious defeat in the First World War. They kept the news of the armistice from us until midday, and then every bell in every church tower rang out joyfully. The most unbelievable rumors circulated. At home in our country, they said there was a revolution going on, a white army fighting against a red one. So that we could find out, I was elected a member of the Workers' and Soldiers' Council. The honor of driving to Brussels in the lieutenant's little car was bestowed upon me. I drove to the first barn I could find so that I could catch up on my sleep. When I got back, I found out that I'd only been elected so that my truck could be plundered without interference. Apparently, we had been defeated. The following noon in Dusseldorf, we saw a promising banner stretched across the beflagged Rhine Bridge with the words, 
Welcome home, our invincible heroes. My truck limped along wretchedly on two cylinders through the icy streets of the German countryside until the petrol gave out and I flogged it to a farmer just outside Kassel for 150 marks. My heart sinking by the minute, I jumped onto an overloaded freight train heading for Berlin. With 60 other men in an open cattle transport wagon, I reached my native city 14 hours later, freezing to death. Two zombies in ragged uniforms surrounded me and kindly offered to help me with my bag and with my destiny. It was useless trying to resist. They disappeared off into the darkest night of my entire existence with what was left of my belongings. Love letters, Lao Tzu, Hamlet, La Rouge et la Noire, a couple of copies of the literary magazine Die Fackel, and a waistcoat made of cat's fur. To keep warm and to get rid of my lice at the same time, I burned my uniform, the Kaiser's stinking coat. Nothing to eat, the first thing I did was to sleep right through for several days, dead to the world, and then I woke up feverish and with a cough that sounded like a howling wolf. Because I'd absented myself from my unit without official permission, they refused to give me any ration cards. There were skeletons scurrying around everywhere on the very point of starvation, even with ration cards. I went out foraging for food and got one potato, which cost me two silver candlesticks. Then I remembered the legendary wine from my parents' wedding, which had been in the cellar at our flat for the past 25 years under lock and key, just waiting to be drunk. Assisted by the artist George Gross, I pushed about 60 bottles of it, hidden in sacks, on a handcart to his studio. There we roasted the potato, ate it together with a yellow beeswax candle, and sampled a couple of bottles of the noble liquid. As it was a time of peace and plenty, Gross painted a placard that said, Well-stacked young society ladies with potential film star qualities are invited to a party at the studio of George Gross, artist, 8 p.m., dress formal, 8, Olivier Platz. With this placard nailed to a broom handle, we paraded like sandwich boardmen up and down the street. Eleven men came to the party. When more than 50 ladies turned up, we had to declare a full house and close the doors. To get the party going, we suggested that everyone should take their clothes off. We men withdrew into the kitchen and decided to keep our clothes on. When we came back into the studio, the ladies were all stripped for action and the orgy began. Everyone got drunk and the empty bottles went flying through the glass of the studio windows and landed on the street, splintering glass, screams, racket. Two days later, I woke up freezing in George Cross's bathtub and my blue suit had been stolen. Next day, I was off to Holland, through fog, ice and snow, through rivers and swamps, and with dogs in my heels, I at last reached, soaked to the skin, just like in my worst nightmares, just before Christmas, the promised land of my fiancé, Lena, a land flowing with milk and honey. I had brought nothing with me from Germany except my Berlin youth, and I neither would nor could abandon that. A huge thank you to my grandfather, Owen, for enduring what I know I could not, and for writing it down. He died a few months before I was born, so I only know him through his words and images. Both Owen, mother, and sister died of tuberculosis not long after the war. 
He went on to found the Dutch Dada art movement with his cousin Paul Citroen in 1918 and married my grandmother Lena in 1921. He had Yorick, my dad, who was featured in episode 59 of Podship Earth, who was born in 1932. And then, during World War II, after being held in internment camps, the whole family, Erwin, Lena, and children, Lisette, Henry, named after Heinz, and Yorick, made it out of France in 1941 to the safety of New York, when my grandfather, Owen became the world's leading fashion photographer. Even today, he has more Vogue covers to his name than any other artist. My grandfather's story doesn't diminish the hardships we are going through right now, but it does reinforce the insanity of the human condition. Somehow, every time something terrible happens to Owen in the story we just heard, he calmly removes himself from the situation like overturning an ambulance and killing everyone inside, and takes a much-needed nap. No matter how cold, how hungry, and how barbaric the world around him was, he just kept going. World War I resulted in 20 million people dying and 21 million people being severely wounded. It was meant to be the war that ends all wars. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, I hope that next year is your best. <laughs>